all have highlights in life and different things that we, can, we, we can't help as we think back on certain times of life, certain experiences we had, events we took part of. We can't help but think back of those and, and smile and just think with, with pleasant thoughts about what we were able to, to be part of. Uh, just with this, the last couple of weeks, we've had all these different uh, graduation gatherings and and uh, it's it's fun. It's it's fun to share in that excitement and to see the smile. This is this is a huge load off of many and and this this crossing the finish line of of high school or college graduations and it's a it's a big exciting time. Uh, there's a there's a certain couple that has a wedding coming up in less than two weeks and. I know they're anticipating that, but those of us who are married, we, we look back on, on our wedding day, and that's just one of those moments that you're just so thankful for, and what, a, what an exciting time. You can, you can only imagine how busy the Lows and the Wickers are right now, with graduations and wedding and all to prepare for. But if, if the Apostle Peter had a highlight of his life, or particularly of his, of his time with Jesus, which would where his highlights would come from, it would probably be what he witnessed up on that mountain when Jesus was changed or transfigured right before his eyes. That this, this was the highlight of the disciples' experience with our Lord during his earthly ministry. Jesus went aside with three of his disciples, this inner core, Peter, James, and John. And, and he took them up on this mountain and, and Jesus was transfigured before their eyes so that, so that his face began to to glow as bright as the sun and his and his and his clothes began to gleam as 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 white as light and so it's just this amazing display and and when Peter saw that and he saw Jesus talking with Moses and talking with Elijah he he says let's build some tents here let's let's settle in here this is good and 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 what he's saying is basically it doesn't get any better than this right here Let's pitch our tent right here, right now. Forget about Jerusalem. Let's just bask in your glory on this mountaintop forever. That's what he's, that's what he's wanting. And, and at this moment, what, what Peter wants more than anything else in this world is to be as close to Jesus as he can possibly be. And, it, and, and once there, he wants to stay there. Isn't, isn't, we can see, we can relate to that. I mean, this is like us, and, and it's not just in, in this more spiritual experience, but we're all kind of groupies by nature, aren't we? We, 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 all, we you have to admit it. We love, we love to get close to the powerful, to the rich and famous, to celebrities, and we have our, you know, the movie theaters or the movie studios and stuff around here, and, and I hear some people, oh yeah, I saw so-and-so celebrity, and saw this, this actor, and wow, this is, you know, we're enamored by that. I mean, we, we all, we all kind of have that uh, sense, until they fall, <laughs> or unless they fall. When they, when they fall, we kind of shrink away, run for cover. We, or, or until criticisms are leveled at our heroes, and then we no longer want to be identified with them. So it is with Peter. So after, after that incredible event that we call the transfiguration, and, 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 and really only minutes after he picked up his sword and, 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 and he rose to the defense of Jesus before this, this, this great 
army of soldiers that came to arrest him. Now we find him in this passage cowering in the shadows. He's terrified of a question of a little girl. And he's denying any association with Jesus. Publicly, and as we learn from parallels, with cursings. You say, wow, what happened? Well, let's hold that thought. And as I've been preparing for this message and thinking and praying and studying this week, I've, I've had three groups of people, three types of people in mind as I've really thought of the application of this passage. And one, I, I, I have in mind those who tend to be sort of self-confident, self-assured people. They think, maybe, maybe they think they're above or beyond falling or stumbling or failing the Lord in any significant kind of way. And I think the message that we'll see today is be warned, be warned. Then there is another type of person. There are those who are discouraged and those who feel hopeless. Maybe guilt-ridden and you're, you're ashamed and, and uh, maybe you've stumbled and you've fallen and you feel like you're beyond the reach of God's restorative grace. Like it's, there's no way that He can bring me back from this. And I would say to you, be encouraged. That's what we're going to... That's how I've been praying for you this week. And then there are... There are a lot of us, a lot of folks who kind of lie in between and maybe, maybe we swing back and forth. We, we go right past center and we tend to be kind of self-assured and then, we, then we're over here and we're, we're really just feel hopeless and helpless and, and we just kind of keep moving back and forth. I think all of us probably fall within one of those types of people today, this morning, and that, as I've, I think so and, as I've, and I've been praying accordingly. And, and, but we all need the same thing basically. We all need to see... Jesus rightly, and we all need to see ourselves rightly. And this passage helps us to do just that. To the self-confident, to the self-assured, we, we need to see and we need to feel our weakness. And to the, to the guilt-ridden and the ashamed, we need to see and we need to feel the, 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 the greatness of Jesus and His grace. And this passage shows us both of these things. This is, this is going to be a little bit of a different kind of sermon and really because it's a different kind of passage. And, and even looking, just look at your English Bible. I, I think that yours is probably, I'm using the English Standard Version, but I think most translations would have the similar setup. And, and the way that you, if you just look at the paragraph headings and the verses that we read in verses 12 to 27, I have four different paragraph headings. And we're going back and forth between Jesus, Peter, Jesus, Peter. And so there's this, there's this back and forth between the steadfastness of Jesus during his trials and then the failure of Peter with his denials. And so John's going back and forth in this. And so we, we get this, this juxtaposition of, of Peter's weakness and we can see ourselves in him. He's a mirror for us, our weakness, and Jesus' strength. And so we, we're going back and forth. So I don't want to, I don't want to, Take that away as we walk through this passage this morning. So, um, so what I want us to see as we, again, walk through this text is that when you and I stumble and fall and fail, and we will, that we can trust the faithful Savior who never fails. That's what, that's what we want to see if we see nothing else today. So, but, but to do that, I want us to do three things this morning as we, as we look at this passage. First thing I want to do is simply just give a bird's eye view of, of how these various trials of Jesus that we're looking at today and we're going to be looking at in the next few weeks, how they fit together. We have to, 
we, 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 we t- we're going to take all the data from the different gospel accounts, and we'll do this very quickly, but give a survey. I think this will be helpful both today and in the weeks to come and, and because it can get a little confusing if we don't see the whole picture of how all this fits together. Secondly, we're just going to walk through the text as John has recorded it under the inspiration of the Spirit back and forth as we just work through this. And then third, I want to draw implications and applications out of this passage with those three types of people that I've mentioned in mind. And, and this is where, if you're really taking notes, that's where you'll have more of an outline to take. Until then, do the best you can. I'm sorry. So, uh, But first, let's, let's just kind of get that bird's eye view of Jesus' trials. Uh, we, we, need, we need this drone view. Maybe that's a better for you younger people. A drone view of what's happening in this part of John and, and how it relates to other accounts of this part of Jesus' life in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because here, what we find in, in these verses is, is the first of six, a series of six trials that Jesus goes through on the way to the cross. And where do we get that number six from? Well, we don't get it from John. We don't get it from Matthew. We don't get it from Mark. We don't get it from Luke. We get it from all of them combined. We have to put all the gospel accounts together to get that, that, that total of six different trials. And so, maybe you're like me. And, and, and you can get a little confused as you read through the gospel accounts by the sequence of these events and, and the significance, exactly what's going on with these different trials and how do they fit together and how do they relate to one another. If you're not confused by this, just bear with me and flatter me and pretend like you are and you, the lights are going to come on. And, and so, but I, 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 need, I needed this. This was helpful for me. And, but let me just break it down really simply. What you have, you have six different trials. First, there are these three religious trials. And then secondly, there are these three Roman government trials. So then they go in that order. So there are these three Jewish trials involving religious authorities. And there are these three uh, government trials, state trials that involve Roman officials. And so the first trial of the six is, is what we're looking at today. It's the trial of this Jewish trial before Annas. Before Annas. And that's what we see in our text today. Verse 12. Look back there with me again. John 18, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. We talked about that last week. But <coughs> this is the question. Why in the world would this little small army of soldiers and, and temple police, why would they, after they bind Jesus and arrest him, why would they take him to the father-in-law of the high priest and not the high priest? If they want Jesus condemned, why not take him to the high priest who, who's the one that can really get the wheels of justice or the wheels of injustice in motion and make something happen here? They know sooner or later that Jesus will have to go before Pilate, before the state authorities, and the link to the Roman authorities, to Jesus' death, is not Annas, but it's Caiaphas. He's the one that has the credentials, so why not go to him first? Well, the answer... Is, is that Annas was, in, an, in effect, the high priest. He, he, he at least was high priest in the eyes of the orthodox, pious Jews in that day. Not in the eyes of the Roman authorities, but in the eyes of most Jews. When, when the Romans came in, Annas was high priest. And they, 
And the Romans deposed him from that office in part because he was so corrupt. Now, their, their, their tolerance for corruption, the Romans' tolerance for corruption was pretty high. But they still, they, they deposed Annas from that position. And yet that didn't stop the Jews from viewing Annas as high priest. He was still the guy. And while his son-in-law was the one in the official capacity, he was still viewed as this, as this priestly figure. And so Annas really was effectively kind of the political boss of Jerusalem. He was, he was the man. And this was true for years. He, nothing happened of real significance in Jerusalem without his hands being in it. And, and, and so he, he's really the power behind his son-in-law Caiaphas, as we'll see. And, it, and his power and his greed, they were legendary. Everybody, everybody knew this. All the commercial traffic of the temple, it went through Annas. In fact, the, the, the market in the temple where Jesus came in and he cleaned, cleaned it out and he, and he let all the animals go and he turned over the tables, that market was known as Annas' Bazaar. That was, so you can, you can see. That, so, so he had a piece in all of that action, all that exchange of money. He profited from all of that. So don't you know when it was time to arrest Jesus that he insisted that he be brought to him first? I want to see this guy. Yeah, there was a there was a record to settle here with with Jesus, and so this first trial takes place in the presence of Annas sometime around midnight Thursday night, right after his arrest. They bring him straight to Annas, and this is not a formal trial. This is an informal trial. There's no verdict that's given or anything like that. And John's the only one of the gospel writers to re, to record this event in any real detail. So everything we know about this is basically from John's account. And we'll, we'll look at it more closely in a moment. So that's, that's the first trial. That's what we're looking at today. second Jewish trial was before Caiaphas and a partial council. And a partial council. So before Caiaphas and a partial council. So John merely mentions this in passing in verse 24. He gives us really no details about this trial. Matthew and Luke, they really focus in on this particular trial of our Lord. But it's here that Jesus is condemned to death by Caiaphas. It's at this second trial, first one before Caiaphas and his partial council. But, but it's an illegal trial. It doesn't count. It, because, there, according to Jewish law, no criminal trials could be held after dark. And this is in the middle of the night, probably around 1 a.m. And so it's this gross violation of their own law. And so there has to be another trial. And that's the third Jewish trial, religious trial. And that's before Caiaphas and the whole council, the whole Sanhedrin. And so early, as soon as they can do it, on Friday morning, they get everybody together, so they do this thing, they want to cross all the T's and dot all the I's, so they bring the council in early that morning, and John doesn't even mention this third trial at all, but, but we, we see it in other gospel accounts. And this was simply a rubber stamping of the verdict that Caiaphas had already given. This was just a formality. And so, so everybody gets up early. They go through the same kangaroo proceedings that they've already gone through. And, and they just want to make sure that, that, that any, lest anybody question, hey, was this done in the daylight or at night? And so they, they do it again, basically, in this third trial. Well, then, then come the three Roman state trials. All right, hang with me. I know I'm seeing glossy eyes here, but just bear with me. Why, why were these necessary? Well, under the, under the Romans, the Jewish government of Judea was really kind of legal fiction. 
It was this little game the Romans played with the, the nations that they conquered. They would let them have their own, their own courts and their own rules up to a point. And so, so they, once there were serious decisions to be made, then the Romans would step in and impose their own rules. And so certainly no prisoner could be executed without Roman involvement. And so that's what we find. So they, the Jews know they have to go to the Romans, go to Pilate. And so the council has to send Jesus to Pilate. So Pilate is the one who can issue the death penalty for Jesus. And that's what we find them doing. So this is the fourth trial, but the first Roman trial before Pilate. And this took place early on Friday morning, probably around 7 a.m. And what a, what a way to wake up. This whole group of, of Jews from the council dragging this prisoner Jesus to, to his door and, and banging on the door. We, we need to see you right now. This is urgent. And so they, they show up and the, and the priests take Jesus to Pilate with the, with the only intention of just having Pilate, again, rubber stamp the decision they've already made, the verdict they've already come to, and send Jesus away to be crucified. And, and so we'll look at John's account of this trial next week. That's where our focus will be. But Pilate, he doesn't just rubber stamp it. In fact, he takes issue with the, with the priests and their, and their verdict and in effect voids it. I don't see anything. There's, he's done nothing wrong. Why? He's not guilty. And 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 so, uh, but when he heard that Jesus was from Galilee, he found a way to kind of all right. I can I can pass this along to somebody else. And so he sends him away for a fifth trial. And the, so the fifth trial, second Roman trial, is the Roman trial before Herod. All right, you with me? Good. Okay. Herod Antipas was the tetrarch, was kind of the ruler of this of the province of Galilee, and since he was ruler over the area where Jesus was from, Herod, or Pilate said, "Hey, I got a way to evade responsibility. I can kind of wash my hands of this, and I'll just push him to to Herod. He's in town for the Passover. He's the guy who's over Jesus's hometown area, and so I'll just let him try the case." But Herod. He has some history. He has some baggage. He's already killed one prophet, John the Baptist, and that did not do well for his reputation among the Jews. And so after it, he has this very brief hearing with Jesus, and he sends Jesus right back to Pilate. And No, nah, I'm not touching that one. And so he goes back for the final trial before Pilate, the second Roman trial before Pilate, and the last of the six. And so this took place probably early Friday morning, around 8 a.m. So this is all a very concentrated period of time. Don't think, you know, these are not days. These are just minutes and hours here. And, and it's at this point in the sixth trial when Jesus is officially sentenced to death. There, there are no charges that are proven. There are no witnesses that are brought forth to testify against Jesus. The judge three times declares that Jesus is innocent. And yet he's condemned and sentenced to die. This is the justice system at its finest. And I, and I, and I, now why take the time to do that? Other than to try to clear up your confusion and my confusion and it was helpful for me and maybe I've lost all of you, I don't know. But what I want you to see is, is as, we, as we think of the cup, as we think of what Jesus walked through, not just at the moment of crucifixion, but, but this is all part of his suffering, all part of him taking the cup to his lips and beginning to drink. It's not just the indecencies and the, and the, uh, uh, um, the, the indignities of a singular trial that Jesus endured. 
That's this series of six trials. It just shows the, the, the evil and, and uh, irrationality of wicked men that he subjected himself to, to this. The God who is just, he submits to this radical and gross injustice. And over, over, over this course of these multiple trials. Alright, with that said, I want us to go back to John 18. And we're going to walk through this passage now. Um, but I hope that helps us as we, as we go into the next couple weeks here. Verses 12 to 14, we read these just a moment ago. And we're talking about that first trial. It, John explains that Jesus was going before Annas' first Jewish unofficial trial. And then the scene changes in verse 15. Verse 15, look there with me. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the priest. But Peter stood outside the door. Now this other disciple is not named here. There's a lot of debate over the identity of this guy. And honestly, it really doesn't matter much. Most think it's probably John and I'm inclined to think that way as well. John, there's evidence to suggest that John had um, connection with a priestly family, which was part of the Sanhedrin. And so if anybody had access to the priestly quarters, it probably would have been John. And so I think that makes the most sense. But, but, uh, but again, it doesn't matter much. Verse 16, so Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out, spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. It's like, hey, uh, this guy's with me. I, I know him. He's fine. He let him in. And so John or whoever the disciple is uses, uses his credentials to get Peter kind of in the walls of this compound and into this courtyard. But then a servant girl, as Peter's entering, stops Peter and questions him. Verse 17. You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And notice how she states the question. She doesn't simply say, are you a member of this man's entourage? Are you one of this guy's followers, one of his disciples? That's not, that's not how she asks the question. She, she phrases the question in this way. You, you are not one of his disciples, are you? And so the way she words the question, it, there's really only one right answer to that question. And that's the one Peter gives. It's, it expects a negative answer, and that's what... Peter does. He says, no, no, I'm, no, no, I'm not. And then verse 18. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. So he's standing and warming himself anonymously, of course, trying to kind of hide out among this group and incognito and and blend in, hide in the shadows. So he stands by this fire. He's no doubt listening in on the conversations between servants and the and the soldiers here who are standing around this fire, keeping warm on this cool, cool night in Jerusalem. And so they're keeping warm and they're they're chatting about what's happening and what's going on. He's listening in on that, keeping himself warm there with them. He's standing with the enemies of our Lord. And then verse nineteen, the focus Shifts from Peter back to Jesus. Again, we got this back and forth. So while Peter's keeping warm by the fire, the heat's really being turned up for Jesus inside. And Annas is interrogating the Lord. Verse 19. 
The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So there's two, two things that, that Annas really brings to Jesus and really presses, his on, pressing, presses him on. His disciples and his doctrine. His relationships, his connections, and his theology. That's what, that's what he's interrogating Jesus. Now, we're not told uh, specifics about what exactly the questioning was, but, but th- this is it. And Now, let me just say, this too was a huge judicial misstep for Annas. This was, this, this was not allowed under Jewish law in any kind of trial setting. There's clear instruction about how they were to, uh, that it was agreed upon how trials were to be conducted. Jewish law said that a prisoner couldn't be questioned or, or asked to bear witness. Uh, but, but in fact, what they would do in their system, they would, they would only hear from witnesses. So you have witnesses that would come on behalf of the defendant, and you would have witnesses would come accusing the defendant, and so the witnesses would be the ones who were interrogated, not the actual uh, alleged criminal, and, and yet this is all set aside, and Annas proceeds to interrogate Jesus, ask him about his disciples, asks him about his teaching. And so that's the focus here. Now, we know when, when, when Jesus is turned over to the Romans after Caiaphas, is, after that, uh, that mock trial, that the charge against him that they show to the Romans is not theological, it's political. Here, it's, it's disciples, it's doctrine. That's what his focus on. And look how Jesus responds, verse 20. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. You see what he's doing. He, he, he's calling out, uh, Annas out on the illegality of this little kangaroo court. You're, you're interrogating me. Questioning me. You, you want to know what I teach and preach? Ask anyone. Uh, yeah, I've, 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 I've not... I've taught openly. I, I don't teach anything differently in the temple than I taught in private. I, I've been open, but I have no double agenda. I'm not. I'm the same thing I teach in the house. I'm teaching in the public square. If you want to know what I teach, ask my disciples. In fact, ask my opponents. They'll tell you what I say. It's open record. Nothing hidden here. And again, he's, he's challenging Annas, he's not, who's not following the Jewish protocol here in this little, quote, trial, he's saying, why don't you ask them? That's, that's the way it's supposed to be done. And Now, when he says these things, one of the Jewish officers, as we see, he gets exactly what Jesus is saying and doing here. He, he picks up on this rebuke of the high priest, Annas. So verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? In which that too was illegal. They weren't to beat prisoners in this setting. But it's this open, it's this palm, it's open hand, it's slapped to the face. And he's basically saying, who do you think you are talking to him that way? Verse 23, and Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, which they didn't do. But if I said, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Now you can, you can only imagine um, 
the level of anger and frustration that was arising in Annas at this point. He has had enough of Jesus. He has heard enough from him. And so he's, he's done. So he has Jesus sent over to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, the one who's actually vested with the authority to do anything about Jesus and can send him on to the Romans. And so he's ready for Caiaphas. Just get him, get him to the Romans so he can die. That's, that's what this is all about. So verse 24, Annas, sent, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So all the, all the while that's going on inside this house or inside this compound, John shifts his focus again to Peter. And back and forth. I, I, think of, I was thinking of, like reading a, a novel where, where the author changes the focus from one character to another as he develops the plot. So if it's an old Western, like a Western novel or something, you've got the, you know, the, the cowboy hero and he's, he's trying to cross some swollen river and he gets knocked off his horse and the horse and the cowboy, they're, they're floating down this river toward a waterfall and, and then it ends a chapter. And then meanwhile, back at the ranch, and it's, it's that kind of feeling. It's like we're, we're, we have this tension building with Jesus and then boom, we're back with Peter. Meanwhile, back at the fire pit. And so we're, we're back on Peter, verse 25. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they, the, the soldiers, the servants that are standing around this fire with Peter, they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? Same kind of question that the girl asked. He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, uh-oh, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? So the, the first two questioners are, are pretty harmless. I mean, this young girl, young maid, these servants. Uh, the third one, that's a little more uncomfortable. You put yourselves in the shoes of Peter here. This is a man who has connections. He's connected to Annas, the high priest, the guy that's inside interrogating Jesus as they speak. He can do Peter some harm. Besides that, he's a relative of the guy that Peter tried to, you know, decapitate just minutes ago in the garden and tried to cut his head off with the sword. And so this is this is this is raised up a level with this third question. But verse 27 says, Peter again denied it. Now that's that's very muted from what we find in the other gospel accounts. The other gospel writers tell us that with his third denial, Peter used this string of foul language. You, I, I, I don't know that blankety-blank man. I, 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 so he's swearing and he's cursing. His denial is emphatic on this third one. And so Simon Peter, the rock, the one who beheld the glory of Jesus Christ and said, oh, I just want to bask in this forever. I can't get close enough to you, Jesus. I, I want to stay here with your glory forever. He has this wonderful confession of faith in Christ at Caesarea Philippi. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This same Peter now three times in front of these servants betrays Jesus with curses. Sad. And as soon as the words of this last denial leave his lips, the rooster begins to crow, fulfilling Jesus' prediction and the warning of Christ. All right, so we've, 
we've got, we see how the trials fit together. We walk through the text. Now, I want us to really kind of tighten the screws of, for the implications of this for us and draw out some application. Again, keeping in mind three types of people I mentioned before. Those who tend to be more self-confident, self-assured. I would never, I would never do that, Lord. I would never fall. I will never let you down. Those who are guilt-ridden say, I, I can never be useful to you again, God, because of what I've done. Or, or, and then everyone else who leans one direction or the other at different times. And so, with that in mind, there, there's the most familiar Bible song that kids, that kids learn, that probably every child in here who's grown up in, with any connection to a church probably learned, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. I know we say that often, but it's not just children who are weak. We're all weak. And that's one, of the, that's one of the clear lessons that this passage shows us. And, and Jesus, though, he is strong, always strong. And so, so with that in mind, I, thinking of those three types of people, let's just say a couple, couple connections to us. First thing, we are weak, and we need to understand that. We need to really own that, our weakness. There's no single Christian who is immune from the possibility of a discipleship meltdown. None of us. No Christian is immune from the possibility of a discipleship meltdown, from a massive spiritual failure. We all have the potential to deny Jesus. And by that, I don't mean that we, we can lose our salvation or anything like that, but, but I mean that true Christians can become submerged in sin for a season, or, or they can dishonor the Savior in tragic, uh, catastrophic, and costly ways. And this teaches us this. In the case in point... If it can happen to Peter, it can happen to you and it can happen to me. So we need, we need to feel that. We need to own that. There's a few things that we see and from, learn from Peter. First thing, status does not exempt us from stumbling and falling. Our status. Peter was one of the Lord's most highly favored disciples. We would, we would expect this from any other of the eleven Besides Peter, before we would expect it from Peter. No, he, he's part, he's the first disciple called by Jesus. He's part of the inner circle with Christ. He's a missionary sent out by Christ, preacher of the gospel. He's, he's the de facto leader of the group. It's with reference to Peter that Jesus says, Upon this rock I will build my church. He's passionately sincere. He deeply loves Jesus. He has strong convictions. He's, he's got strong faith. He's got unrelenting zeal. And yet he's just a man. He's weak. Just like you and me. So, so status isn't enough to ensure that we won't fall. You, you can have the most wonderful Christian upbringing. And you can have a legacy of faithful Christian service. And you can, can have a position of ministry in the church. And that will not protect you or guarantee that you won't fail and fall and dishonor the Lord in your life. You can't depend upon that. Believe me, brothers and sisters, I feel this as one of your pastors. And I hope that you feel this deeply too. Age, decades of faithful service to Christ, radical missions involvement, none of that will guarantee your protection. You can't depend on those things. Those are good things, but they're not, they can't guarantee your protection. 
So status won't guarantee it. Secondly, hearing warnings is not enough. Just hearing warnings. Jesus told Peter exactly what was going to happen to him in the plainest possible terms. He was warned and he heard those warnings. And and yet Peter walked headlong into his sin and into betrayal, rejecting the light and the warning that Christ gave to him. We can know all about the dangers of sin and we can, we can be warned and hear the warnings from Scripture and from our parents and from our preachers and from Sunday school teachers and from reading books. We, we hear all these warnings. We know all of this stuff. We know how wrong sin is. And yet our problem isn't generally ignorance of truth. It's disobedience to the truth that we know. You can, you can be a seasoned sermon listener you're here every week and you're taking notes. You've got gobs of, just reams of notebooks of, of notes you take. You take stuff down that I didn't even say. And you, you, you get it all down and more. And you listen to podcasts and you, you got it all. And you, you do that all the time. But that will not guarantee your stability when temptations come. It's good. It's something I hope you do. And you, 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 you listen and you fill your mind with what's true. That's good, but it's not enough. We don't just need to heed the we don't just need to hear the warnings of scripture we need to heed the warnings of scripture be obedient to the truth that we know not be be hearers of the word as James says but doers third we learn this from Peter in his example here loud bold confident professions won't protect us our vows that we make to the lord Passionately beating our chest, signing the card, whatever, putting the ring on, that offers us no security. Peter had just confidently and proudly and loudly and, and, to, and, and, and in a sense sincerely declared to everyone his absolute loyalty and faithfulness to Christ. He just made this very clear. Remember, he's, he's with, the, with the other disciples and Jesus warns that you're going you're to deny me. And he said, no, no, no. All these other losers, these other 11, they might fall away. But I, me, myself, I will never fail you, Lord. If I have to die, if I have to go down fighting to the death, I will do it for you, Lord. That's, that's, that's summing up what he's just, the affirmation that he just made. And yet within an hour or two of that confession of this ultimate love and commitment to Jesus, he denies that he even knows the man with cursing. So the Christian life, it's not about our loud and proud declarations of loyalty to Jesus. The question, the question of, that our faith rests on is not, what sacrifices am I willing to make for Christ? But the question our faith rests on is, what, what was Christ willing to do and sacrifice for me? That's where, that's where our faith really ultimately rests. And from that place, we risk all and we, we give all for Him. But I've heard, I've heard Christians boastfully say when, when another brother or sister falls in some catastrophic ways that make the news headlines, some pastor, well-known pastor or even in a church context, they would say, I would never, ever do that. I would just, I, I, I shudder a little bit. I say, be careful. Be warned. But for the grace of God. So there's no, there's no, there's a sense, there's a false sense of security that comes with self-confidence. 
But there's no real safety there. And Peter teaches us this. And lastly, what Peter shows us is, is that geographical nearness is no guarantee. Peter's been close to Jesus for three years now. Maybe he's spent gobs of time together. Traveled all over the place, eaten all their meals together, lived together. I mean, they've been together almost constantly for three years. And even in this moment of testing, he's probably just yards away from Jesus. About where my family is sitting. He may be that close. He may have, he may have a visual on Christ as he's making these denials. But, but even being physically close is not enough. I, I realize we don't have, we, we don't have that kind of, the, to the physical human body of Jesus. We don't have that close. But I would say, thinking of our application to us, is going, going to church, coming here, that's hugely important to your sanctification and to your protection against temptation and stumbling. But that's not enough. Uh, you can't depend upon that. Your physical nearness to God and to the means of grace that He's given us for our growth and for our protection, it's not a guarantee that you and I won't stumble and fall. And he's saying, man, this is a discouraging sermon. So, so, so but, but I, before we move to the encouragement... <laughs> Do you think that you would never and could never fall like Peter? I hope you don't now. Are you self-confident? Are you self-assured? Are you, if so, I say be warned. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians ten twelve: Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So we're weak. As a hymn writer says, we're prone to wonder. Do you, do you feel that? Prone, proneness to wonder. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here, but here's the good news. And there is good news. And we have time for it, so we're okay. Is that is, is there's, there's hope for those who've stumbled in, in, in ordinary ways and denying Jesus in the kind of course of everyday life and in very catastrophic ways. There's hope. And it's this, is that as weak as we are, Infinitely more, Jesus is stronger. He's strong. He's, he, there's no single Christian who is beyond the reach of God's grace to restore failed disciples. And we all fail. So this isn't like a one time. Man, I hope I, one of these days I might need that grace. No, I need it every single day. And so, so don't just think of those headline kind of catastrophic failures. It's, it's all of us we need this. Now, I realize some of you, maybe, maybe there's some failure that you just feel like, man, that, that is so far out of reach. But I'm saying it's not, and this text proves it. That Jesus is everything that Peter is not in this scene. He, he is steadfastly committed to God's plan for his life, no matter the cost. And, and so Jesus, he's facing enormously greater trials than Peter is facing with this little girl and these servants around the fire. But he's faithful to the end. He's faithful to the end. And that, that helps us. Jesus is strong. He's strong in mercy. He's strong in grace to forgive. He's strong in power to change us and to use us. And we see that very clearly. And the turning point for Peter, it involved two things. There was the crowing of the rooster, which again, just gives us great visual and auditory just picture of, of what happened here. Reminding Peter of the Lord's prediction. And then... We know from other gospel accounts, and Luke in particular, we, we know that the Lord turned and looked directly at Peter. There was eye contact. 
Jesus in Luke 22, verse 61. The rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. After the rooster crowed, after Peter locked eyes with the Lord, his bloodied and bruised face, he fell apart in godly sorrow. And he went out, and this text says he even wept bitterly. So even, even in Jesus' own hour of, of greatest need and sorrow, he's showing, he's showing great care and grace for his own. Benjamin Warfield said, Our Savior, as he stood giving account in his trial, working for the saving of the whole world, had time to turn a meaningful glance to his failing disciple. And so save him in the saving of the world, because the Lord Jesus was not going to let go of Peter, though Peter had let go of him. That's that's the grace of our God. And we know the rest of the story. We'll look at this in, in, in several weeks in John chapter 21. Jesus has now died and he's risen again. And, and, and so there were three denials here in, in this courtyard of, of Annas. And, and there are going to be these three questions. And you know the story. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? And in John twenty one seventeen, he said to him, Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to the Lord, you know all things, Lord. I, I, am, I am well past the point of thinking I can hide anything from you. Lord, you know that I love you. Gone is the chest pounding. Gone is the raised fist. Gone are the loud, bold declarations. He just lays his heart bare before us. Lord, you know I love you. I'm an open book. And the Lord says, I can work with that. I can use that. You're useful to me. Feed my sheep, Peter. Then we see something amazing in the book of Acts. I mean, you think about it. If, if Peter had clung to his pride, he would have said, there is not a chance in the world I'm ever going to show my face in Jerusalem again after what I've done. Even after Christ is dead and raised again. You know, someone else can preach. I'm going back to Galilee, going to have a little fishing business. I'm done. My usefulness is over. My life is over. I'll just go back, try to be a faithful Christian there, but I'm done. But No. He, thankfully, by God's grace, he, he recovers from his fear of what other people think of him. And, 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 he, and he's restored to care, about, care most about what pleases Christ. And so we find him, he's, he's preaching and he's suffering and he's preaching and he's suffering. And God uses him to see thousands of people, thousands of souls, one to faith in Christ. And he would come in just weeks. And he would come and he would stand before the same crowd that he's cowering under right here. Same Sanhedrin, same men, same high priest. And he's going to come where he's cowering here. He's going to come and he's going to courageously preach Christ crucified and risen again as the only hope of salvation for the world. So what a remarkable transformation. That's That's the power of our Lord. To take us weak, Failing, stumbling, falling disciples. And he, he can use us. He can restore us. His grace is enough. It's so strong. He's mighty. Let me just end and let Peter talk to us for just a moment. If Peter could come and preach the conclusion of our sermon, we would all be happy for one thing. And he, he, this is what I think he would say to us. If he, if he shared his testimony about this night, 
what he learned from it, how he would he exhort us. Just that in mind, I just want to want us to some things I think Peter would say to us today. First thing I'm sure he would say: never, ever, ever put confidence in the flesh. That boast I made that I would never deny him. I was depending on the power of my own flesh when I made that. I was going to stand strong for him in my own power. Me, Mr. Mighty Fisherman. How foolish I was. Don't make the same mistake I made. Don't become proud. Don't try to stand for Jesus in the strength of your own power. You will fall if you do, just like I did. I think he was saying, no, never have, never put your confidence in the flesh. Don't trust in your ability to stay faithful to Jesus. Trust in Jesus' ability to keep you faithful. Second thing I think he would say is, be alert to the schemes of the devil. I know he would say this because he did say this. First Peter one or First Peter five eight, he later wrote, Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I've said this again with reference to this verse. I mean, just think if a real lion were loose on the Corinth corridor, that we got some news alert on our phone, and all your phones started beeping like crazy, and lion loose on Corinth Road. It would change how we moved around this church campus, how you went across to the fellowship time, wouldn't you? We'd be looking out the door and, and then... You know, just booking it across the parking lot. Cecil would probably be up on the roof with a lion rifle. I don't know what kind of rifle you used to shoot a lion, but uh, we, we'd, be, we'd be watching. We went to our cars, and, 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 and so it would be different. We would live differently. This is what Peter says. Your, your adversary, he's like a lion, and, he's, and he's, he's, he's roaming. He's looking for people to devour, and yet you live like he doesn't exist. You live like everything's just, everything's fine. We're in a... We're in an age of peace when we have this enemy of our souls who's working for our destruction. So he would say to us, be alert. Don't be ignorant to the schemes of the devil. Another thing I'm sure he would say is, make sure in your heart you're always prepared prepared to testify to Christ. Be ready when the time comes. This little girl, she caught me off guard. (laughs) Don't you be caught off guard. Don't be afraid. You be be prepared before that time comes and the deepest part of your heart say, in whatever situation God allows me to enter into, yes, I'm with Jesus, I belong to Him. You, you prepare in your hearts. And again, I don't have to wonder if Peter would say this because he did in First Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. See, it's deeper than the tongue. It's not just, can I say the words in that moment? No, it goes all the way to the heart, Peter says. Be prepared in your hearts to testify to Christ. Another thing I would think he would say is, when you do fall, and you will, run quickly to Jesus. He'd say, here's another way I blew it. When I saw that I was denying my Lord, I didn't stop. I kept going deeper and deeper into my sin. And that's the way it is with sin. We don't ever plateau. We either repent of it or our hearts grow harder and we go deeper into it. Remember what our brother John said. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to 
Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Run to Jesus. Don't delay. Another thing I think you would say is, if and when you blow it, your usefulness to God is not ruined forever. Maybe you've denied the Lord too, he might say. Maybe not with words like me, perhaps through the slow, gradual neglect of your own soul. The fires of devotion that once existed are now just cold ashes. Or some sinful habit has taken hold of you and, and worked ruin in you. Or some lingering bitterness and anger has just choked the spiritual life out of you. And you think that he can never use you again. But you're wrong. <laughs> Look at me. Another thing I think he'd say is, thank God for roosters. <laughs> and listen to them. God used a rooster for me. He has many ways to touch our hearts though. There are many roosters he can use to crow to awaken us from sin. Thank God for them. And I don't know what he may be, may have used or is using in your life. Sickness, pain, Relational difficulties, problems, job loss, financial struggles, disappointments, moves. But these are things that the Lord uses to arrest our attention. Two more things. I think he would say, don't be severe or harsh with brothers or sisters who stumble and fall. But also don't, don't neglect them and leave them alone. He'd say, don't, don't have an air of superiority like I did toward the other disciples. And when a brother or sister stumbles and falls, don't, don't treat them cruelly or harshly. Remember that they are not the worst sinner you know. You are the worst sinner you know because you knew far more about yourself than you know about them. But also don't be tempted to distance yourself from sinners who are stumbling and struggling. Don't separate from them. Move towards them in love. Work to lovingly rescue them. And then lastly, and most adamantly, I'm confident he would say, cling to the gospel. Christ crucified and risen again is your only hope. This is the most important thing by far. Always, always, always go back to the cross, he'd say. I, I didn't get this before Jesus died and rose, but I, I got it after. It's at the cross where we're reminded how weak and sinful we are, but how powerful and gracious God he is. It's here and here only that we find hope and help for any kind of change or usefulness in life. Stay there. Stay there. I've alluded to a song a few times in this message, and it was one that I've thought about more later in the week and didn't have time to pass along to Pat, but it's a familiar hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, uh, by, written by Robert Robinson. I, I know I've shared this story before, but, there, but one of the verses that I've alluded to a couple times here, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. It's, again, written by Robert Robinson. He, he lived this wild and rebellious life as a young person, as a teenager. At age 17, he and some of his buddies, and they, they, they George Whitfield was in town, this, this famous evangelist that 
had all these kinds of people flocking to hear him speak. They, they went with the express purpose to go and to mock him as he preached the gospel. So that, that was why they went. But, but he was so moved by Whitfield's preaching and the Spirit worked in his life that he ended up coming to faith in Christ that night. And so it was six years later, he's 23 years old, and he writes this hymn. He started writing some other hymns, and, but he wrote this, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And he went on, he served as a pastor for several years. And, but, it, but, it, but later in life, he, he, he fell off the tracks. He got involved in false doctrine, got, in, got kind of swept up in Unitarianism, and, and, and just fell away from the Lord, and just abandoned his faith in, in, in many senses. So one day, though, he's riding on this stagecoach between cities, and he strikes up a conversation with a woman who's seated next to him. And as they're talking, she realizes that he's very conversant on, on spiritual matters. And so she asks him, what, she, she asks him what, do you, what do you think of this hymn that I've been reading and kind of looking at and studying? And so she shows him the hymn, and it's the hymn he wrote. Come, thou fount of every blessing. And so when she shows him this, he bursts into tears. And he says to her, I'm the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. I would give anything to have back the joy that I knew then. And as the woman, as they talked, the woman assured him that the streams of mercy that he wrote about in that hymn, they still flowed. (laughs) They still flowed. And so he, he was deeply touched, and the Lord used that conversation. He turned his wandering heart to the Lord and found grace and forgiveness in the Lord, and his life was, was back. He was with the Lord again. Well, I just say that same grace is available to you and to me today. It, no matter how badly you failed the Lord or, or how far that you feel from Him right now, if you, if you turn back to Him, He will abundantly pardon and forgive you and restore you to fellowship to him, with Him and usefulness in His service. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to, you don't have to polish yourself up and get your act together and kind of prove to the Lord you've got a three-month track record of, of you kind of doing it in your own strength before you can ever approach Him and say, look, look now, God, I think I'm serious this time. No, you turn your heart to Him and say, God, forgive me. Come broken before him. I'm weak. You're strong. You're able. I'm not. I need you, God. And he will be pleased to restore you. We are weak. Jesus is strong. That's not just the stuff of children's Bible songs. That is absolute truth that we need to to cling to deep down in the core of our being. Let's pray. Father, would you help these simple truths that we see throughout Scripture, God, of our weakness and your strength to, to really just drive some deeper roots into our hearts today. That we would, uh, that, that this would take root in our souls and that, that, that from it would just spring forth implications in our lives even this week, God. And so for, if there are any that come in with head held high, kind of doing some internal chest pounding, thinking I, I've got this Christian life figured out, I've, I've got it, I would, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be faithful in my own strength. That I pray that they would be humbled, brought low, shown their weakness. And if there are those that come in and their head is low and they're turned in on themselves and 
just ridden, racked with, by guilt and shame, and thinking they can never be useful to you again. I pray that they would, their hearts would be encouraged to see the strength of our Lord. God, use your word. Um, may, it, may you do that quick work in this moment, but do the long work of when we leave here, that this would, would continue to, to just kind of saturate into our hearts. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.